When was the last time that you found yourself in a situation where you had to wait for somebody? When we think about waiting, it's often the frustrating experiences uh, that come to our mind first, right? Maybe you found yourself waiting for your spouse or for your kids this morning when you were trying to get out the door for church, right? Anyone? Uh, Maybe you've recently suffered through being on hold with your internet company, waiting for the customer service representative to come uh, back onto the line to help you get your bill sorted out. In our fast-paced, technology-driven culture, we do not like waiting. And when we find ourselves in situations where we are forced to wait, we get frustrated, right? We sigh, we get restless and fidgety, we give people death glares, (laughs) we pull out our phones to distract ourselves. But there is another kind of waiting, There's another kind of waiting that many of us kind of grow out of as we get older. There's a kind of waiting that's brimming with hopeful anticipation. One of my favorite moments this Christmas was catching my nephew Ethan in one of those moments of hopeful waiting. I was at my parents' house on Christmas Day, and in the afternoon, my parents went out for a walk. And while they were gone, my sister arrived with her crew, including Ethan, who's eight years old. And Ethan rushed into the kitchen where I was preparing my signature Christmas dish, a cheese tray. (laughs) And he said, where's Nana and Grandpa? Because Ethan's a smart guy. He knows that Christmas can only really begin when Nana and Grandpa get there. And so I broke the news to him. I told him that they were out for a walk, and he just kind of like sighed and slinked away. And a moment later, I looked over, and I saw Ethan leaning over the back of the couch, looking uh, out the window. And I kind of initially just figured that he was checking out the neighbor's lawn decorations or something, and so I went back to putting together my culinary masterpiece. And then a little bit later, I looked out the window, or I looked out into the living room again, and Ethan was still there, leaning over the back of the couch, as still as a stone, with laser focus. And that's when I realized what he was doing. In the midst of the hustle and the bustle of our busy house, Ethan's attention was fixed on one thing and one thing only. He was watching and waiting and watching and waiting for his Nana and Grandpa to arrive. And the moment that they turned the corner and into the driveway, Ethan sprung up off of the couch and he ran throughout the house announcing that Nana and Grandpa were on their way and the party was about to get started. 
This morning, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And we're entering into the story at a point in history when Israel had been waiting and watching, and watching and waiting, and hoping for the Messiah to come. Throughout their history, the Jewish people had been through all kinds of suffering and darkness. They'd continuously failed to live into their calling as God's chosen people. They'd worshipped other gods. They'd practiced injustice. They'd been conquered and exiled from their land. The Jewish people knew that they were in need of a savior. And through the prophets, they had been given this promise that one day a king would come who would lead them into peace and prosperity and freedom. And that promise gave them hope. That promise carried them through for generation after generation as they watched and waited for the Messiah to come. And by the time we get to the New Testament, 400 years have passed since the Jewish people had heard from God. 400 years. No new prophets had been raised up. No revelations had been received. The Jewish people were just watching and waiting and hoping for a Messiah to enter the scene and to do something new. And then there's this burst of excitement Right? An elderly couple receives a visit from an angel and they're told that they're going to have a son and that this son is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And then a young woman gets a visit from an angel and she's told that she's going to give birth to this promised king, the son of the most high, the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for. And then these two baby boys are born and blessed and prophesied over in the temple And then there's a pause in the story. We get one passage about Jesus staying behind at the temple after Passover, right? Pastor Stephen uh, spoke about that last week and his parents losing track of him when he was about 12 years old. But aside uh, from that, there's a gap in time between Luke chapter two and Luke chapter three. As these boys grow up, And Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph watch and wait and watch and wait with hopeful expectancy about God would do through their sons. And then we get to chapter three and John the Baptist springs off the couch or out of the wilderness or something to let everyone know that their waiting is over. The time has come. The Messiah is on his way and it's time to get themselves ready. So let's have a look. We're going to look at Luke chapter 3 this morning and we are going to be um, going through verses 1 through 16. And so we'll kind of walk through the passage one section at a time and then zoom out and have a, a look at the big picture of what's going on in this passage and really what it calls us to. So Luke 3 verse 1. 
I'm going to say a lot of names. I'm going to say them with a lot of confidence. And because I say them with confidence, you're going to believe that I'm pronouncing them correctly. <laughs> Deal? Deal. Okay. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. See what I'm saying? Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. So Luke starts this section of his book by using one of the conventional ways of dating historical narratives at his time. He tells us who the rulers and officials were at the time that John came onto the scene. And based on the information that he gives us, scholars tell us that John's ministry began somewhere between 27 and 29 AD. But Luke's doing more than just telling us when John started his ministry. He's also painting a picture of the political and social landscape that John entered into. John came into a world that was full of tension and oppression, where the people at the top had all kinds of wealth and status and power, and they often stood in opposition to God and his will. And then John bursts onto the scene, verse 2. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. So a message of God comes to John. Through John, God breaks those 400 years of silence. This is a big deal. And notice the contrast between the rulers that Luke has just told us about and John the Baptist. The rulers have powerful positions and they have money and they have social status. John lives in the wilderness. John's got a wild heart, all right? The Gospel of Matthew tells us that uh, John wore clothes made of camel's hair and that he lived on a diet of locusts and wild honey. He lives off the land. He doesn't indulge in luxuries. His clothes and his lifestyle really kind of tell us that he fits right in with the Old Testament prophets. There's a really stark contrast drawn between the people in power at this time and John, Jesus' crazy cousin, who shows up in the wilderness with a message from God. And the wilderness is a significant place in scripture. The wilderness is a place where people both encounter God and wrestle with evil. It's a place of spiritual significance. In Israel's story, the wilderness was the place that God led his people to after freeing them from slavery. And it was an image that became attached to Israel's hope for a new exodus. Their hope that God would lead them into freedom again, once and for all. Verse three. Then John the Baptist went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. 
So John goes around telling people that they, they need to repent and be baptized. And what John is calling people to do here is completely new. All right, the Jewish people had ritual washings that they would practice to maintain their purity. But the only people who actually went through a process of baptism were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. So there are these hints in the story that, uh, in what John's doing, that God is doing something new. And that nobody gets off of the hook because of their traditions or because of the family that they were born into. Everyone comes to God on the same terms. John's calling all people to make a choice, to make a decision, to turn away from sin and to surrender their lives to God. And then Luke quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 40, verses three to five, to make sure we're kind of putting all of the pieces together, to make sure we're catching who John is. So verse four, Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him, the valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills will be made level, the curves will be straightened, and the rough places will be made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. This is the moment that everyone's been waiting for. Salvation is on its way. And when Matthew and Mark quote that passage to introduce John, they only actually include that first section about a voice in a wilderness. But Luke gives us more context, most likely because he wants to, he wants to make sure that we don't miss that last part where it says that all people will see the salvation sent from God. All people. The good news isn't just for the Jewish people. And this would have blown up everyone's understanding of the Messiah. This wasn't going to be the king that they were imagining who would defeat Rome and lead the Jewish people into victory. Somehow, somehow, through this Messiah, all people would see and be invited to experience God's salvation. Verse 7. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He wasn't exactly seeker sensitive, right? John didn't mind ruffling people's feathers a little bit. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yikes, right? What is going on here? So John starts drawing these big crowds. Lots of people get caught up in the hype and come to John for baptism, but they miss the whole point. They believe that just because they're descendants of Abraham, they're covered, right? They're good. 
This whole repentance thing can't apply to them. There were a lot of religious people who went through all of the right rituals and who said all of the right things, but whose hearts were far from God. You know, and we might not have the same Jewish background as the people in this passage, but we all face temptation to make things look uh, better on the outside than they are on the inside. Right? To make it look like we've got it all together, even when inside, we're a mess. There's an expression in Britain that says, the queen thinks that the whole world smells of fresh paint. I guess we'd now have to to switch that out for king, right? The king thinks that the whole world smells of fresh paint because whenever the king's about to arrive, everyone slaps a fresh coat of paint onto the wall to try to cover up the mess, to try to make things seem shiny and new to impress him. And we do the same kinds of things, right? In our conversations with others and the things that we post on social media and try to make ourselves uh, look good on the outside. But John wasn't interested in how things looked on the outside. He didn't care what anyone's background was or ancestry. Uh, He didn't care what kind of credentials they had. John was calling people to turn to God with their whole hearts and with their entire lives. And he intentionally uses this harsh language to try to wake people up. to force them into a point of decision about how they're going to live and who they're going to live for. Verse 10. The crowds asked, what should we do? So the people recognize that this is a message that demands a response. And this question, what should we do, is one that actually comes up again and again in the books of Luke and Acts as people encounter Jesus and hear the gospel, they recognize that what they've encountered calls them to live differently. And so the crowds ask, what should we do? And I'm going to be honest with you, okay? I would be pretty nervous about asking that question to John the Baptist. The dude lived in the wilderness and ate bugs. I really like plumbing, okay? I would half be expecting him to say, well, you've got to leave it all behind and you've got to come live in the wild. I hope that you like to eat locusts and honey. But that's not what John says, right? Verse 11, John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. That's pretty practical, isn't it? You have more than you need, whether that's food or clothes, share it with somebody who needs some help. Verse 12, even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? Now, tax collectors were some of the least popular people in this society. They collected taxes for Rome, and so they were seen as traitors, and they often ripped people off. They would ask people to pay more than Rome required, and then they would keep a little off the top for themselves. And we might expect John to tell the tax collectors that they should go find new jobs. But he doesn't. Verse 13, he replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. 
Again, pretty simple, right? He offers some really practical guidance. He tells them to go back to their jobs and in a career that's full of corruption to be people who do what's right. And then some soldiers approach John with the same question, verse 14. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. So soldiers were known for abusing their power to rob people. They'd make threats and and they'd use violence and then they would say that they were kind of forced into doing that because Herod didn't pay them enough. And so John says, be content with what you get paid and don't misuse your power. Don't abuse people. Don't rob people. So John gives three different pieces of instruction to three different groups of people. But the heart of what he calls them to is the same. He doesn't say that everyone needs to leave everything behind and reject society and live like he does. He tells people to go back to their ordinary lives and to do things in a new way. To turn away from their selfishness and to treat other people with care and with generosity. And then the people start to wonder whether John might be the Messiah. Verse 15. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone's coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John has no interest in soaking up any recognition for himself. The only thing that matters to John is pointing people to Jesus. So after years of waiting and watching and watching and waiting and generation after generation of silence from God, John breaks onto the scene announcing that the Messiah was on his way and calling people to get ready so that their hearts and their minds would be wide open for everything that God was about to do through Christ. And we might live on the other side of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But just like the people that we read about in this passage, we are still prone to cluttering up our lives with things that get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. We're still prone to becoming so consumed with our own desires and our own appetites that our hearts and minds kind of become closed off from what God's calling us to. We're still prone to being distracted and pulled off course from the ways of Jesus. And so this morning we're gonna look at three different aspects of John's message that are just as relevant and urgent for us to hear today as they were 2,000 years ago. The first one's this. John's message was for everyone. John entered into a world that was extremely divided, where there were people who were in and there were people who were out. And there were people at the top and there were people at the bottom. And everyone knew where the lines were drawn. And the people at the top 
kind of walked around believing that they were good, that they were God's favorites, that they had their lives together. And so it was really difficult for them to understand why this prophet out in the wilderness was telling them that they needed to repent. And we might not walk around with that same sense of superiority. Maybe we do, I don't know. But most of us probably don't walk around with that same sense of superiority. But we do live in a world that kind of tell, tells us that everything goes, right? That we're all good. I'm okay, you're okay. And most of us aren't that bad, right? I mean, we might not always like radiate the love of Christ, but we've never robbed a bank, right? We never committed murder. And so it's easy for us to kind of just feel like we're good. A couple of weeks ago, our assistant daycare director, Savannah, came back to my office over here. And she told me that the police were on the phone for me. That's right, here at the church. And I was like, sweet! I was like, sweet! I was thinking, they probably need my help with something. Probably need my help, right? And my day's about to get a whole lot more exciting. I don't mind a little excitement now and then. And I got onto the phone and the officer kind of said hello. And then he said, do you drive a blue Toyota? And I said, I do. And he said, do you remember stopping for gas on December 30th? And I said, I do. Actually, I was on my way to the church, stopped at Canadian Tire. And then he said, do you know what you forgot to do? And I said, I don't. <laughs> Please tell me. And he said, you forgot to pay. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> me? I stole gas? Like, I, I'm being pursued by the police right now. You're tracking me down at my job at the church. I'm being pursued by the police because I stole gas? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and so we got it sorted out. I paid for the gas. I'm here. Didn't get arrested. I cleared up the rumors about why the police were knocking on my door at my townhouse complex. But here's the thing. Never once did it occur to me that I possibly could have been the problem. <laughs> Didn't occur to me. And John says, this call to repentance, this call to look at our lives and to get rid of the junk that's destroying our souls and hurting others and pulling us away from Jesus, it's for all of us. None of us get off the hook because of who we are or where we come from. None of us are above this because we've got it all together. We never graduate beyond needing to repent. John's message is for everyone. And the flip side of that is that John's message is for everyone. And we all have times where we blow it, where our weaknesses and our failures kind of weigh on us and when we feel like we just can't get our lives together. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But in this passage, we see people who were labeled outsiders and sinners people who were rejected and despised by their communities, invited to be a part of what God was doing, 
to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And this continues throughout the life of Jesus as he extends love to those that everyone else rejected. And then as he gives up his life so that everyone could experience salvation. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. This message is for everyone. Secondly, John's message was one that calls for a response. If people wanted to be a part of what God was doing, it actually required making some changes to their lives, right? Their lives couldn't just keep going according to the status quo. And I don't know what comes up for you when you hear the word repent. Doesn't always surface warm, fuzzy feelings for us, right? Maybe you have images of angry street pre- uh, preachers come to your mind. Maybe you've heard that word used to crush people with guilt and shame. But if we can untangle the word repent from those associations and hear it with fresh ears, it's actually a word that's really hopeful and really powerful because it gives us permission to tell the truth about the uh, broken areas of our lives. It gives us permission and freedom to kind of take off our masks and to be real with God and with each other. And it means that change is possible. Healing is possible. We can get things wrong and make mistakes and then receive God's grace and let him lead us in a new way forward. The Hebrew word that was originally used to describe repentance meant to take a deep breath and sigh. It meant having deep feelings of sorrow and remorse about what you had done. But the authors of the Old Testament very quickly started to use a different word to describe repentance. And that word kind of soon took over. And that word means to return or to turn around and go in a new direction. So repentance isn't about being crushed with guilt and shame or feeling really bad. It's about turning around. It's about letting God lead us in a new direction. And repentance isn't just for those big, headline-worthy sins. It's really just a constant recalibration of our hearts and our minds to the love of God. And when John describes what repentance looks like, what he says is really pretty mundane. He tells people to go back to their ordinary lives and to their workplaces and to stop grasping and clinging and fighting for everything they can get, and instead to live in love and generosity towards others in their normal, everyday interactions. And that can sound really kind of underwhelming and insignificant. But imagine each one of us lived our lives this way. Imagine we considered every interaction holy. Imagine we saw Christ in every person we talked to. It would change our families. It would change our workplaces. It would change our community. It might even change Facebook. A little while ago, I ordered Thai uh, food from a restaurant near my place. 
And when I went to pick it up, um, the man at the till immediately smiled at me when I walked into the door. And when I got to the counter, he said, I have to tell you, you were so kind on the phone. I was so stressed out when you called. We were busy. There were papers everywhere. He was showing me all these papers. Like, there's papers everywhere. It was awful. And your kind voice, your friendliness, it changed my entire night. And to be honest with you, I was really pretty focused on the food, <laughs> like when I was ordering. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm a friendly person, like generally speaking, but you know, I, wasn't, I didn't remember being exceptionally bubbly, but I wasn't going to argue with the guy. And so I was like, oh, that's great. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. And then he put the order up on the counter, and he went to punch it into the till. And he said, you got the pad thai, right? And I said, actually, I got a curry. And there's a long, awkward pause. <laughs> and he said, it wasn't you. <laughs> it's like, I caught that. I caught that. It wasn't me. He wasn't talking about me. But it was a reminder to me that those little interactions with the people that God places along our path every single day matter and they can make a bigger difference than we even know or realize. John's message called for a response. Right? It changed the way that people lived their normal, everyday, ordinary lives. And lastly, John's message was all about Jesus. John called people to change, but this wasn't about behavior modification. John was calling people to get rid of the junk that was consuming their lives and destroying their souls so that their hearts would be open, open to see and to enter into the kingdom of God that Jesus was about to announce. Ultimately, it would be Jesus who would love people back to life and show them how to live and offer forgiveness and freedom once and for all. John's only concern was to point people towards him. I was looking through some artwork um, from throughout history that depicts John the Baptist this week. And in every picture, all that John does is he just points. He's always just pointing to Jesus. To Jesus. So we've got a few examples for you. I'm not going to try it for the sake of, uh, to, to save us all the agony. I'm not going to try to pronounce the names here, but... Um, so this is a, a piece of art from 1655. You can see John's pointing to Jesus. This other one from the 1600s. He's pointing. There he is again, 1600, pointing. And we got the last one. This is the crucifixion. And again, right, he's just pointing to Jesus. That's it. John drew all kinds of people, right? all kinds of crowds. People flocked to him. They listened to him. They responded. They questioned whether John might even be the Messiah. But John had no interest in drawing any attention to himself. He didn't feed his own ego with the applause of the crowds. Instead, he said this, someone's coming who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He was all about Jesus. 
And the beautiful thing about that verse is that John was right. He wasn't worthy to be Jesus' slave, to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. None of us are. And yet, as the story continues and we get to know Jesus, we don't get the picture of somebody who cared about his position or his status or his recognition. Rather, Jesus continually set himself aside for the sake of others. And in the book of John, we read that Jesus himself took on the position of a slave and washed the feet of his disciples, including the disciple who was about to betray him. And then he went to the cross and he gave up his life in this incredible act of sacrificial love so that we could be forgiven and have new life in God's kingdom here and now and for all of eternity. And when we open ourselves up to receive that love, it changes us. It fills us with peace and hope and joy. And then we get to spend our lives pointing people to Jesus, right? just like John, so that they can experience his love and freedom too. The message that John proclaimed is a message that's for everyone. It's a message that calls for a response. And it's a message that's all about Jesus. John came into the world announcing that after all of those years of watching and waiting and watching and waiting, the Messiah was on his way. And as the story unfolds, we will see that Jesus was completely different than what anyone was expecting in a Messiah. But that's because God was doing something new through Jesus. Something that was bigger and better than what anyone ever could have imagined. He didn't come to bring the Jewish people military victory and to defeat the Romans. He came so that all people could see and experience the salvation that comes from God. He came to offer a salvation that's characterized by hope and wholeness and freedom and new life. And it's a salvation that's still available to us today. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to take a few moments to just kind of reflect on those areas of our lives where things have been getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus and how he might be calling us to reorient our hearts towards him. But first, let's just take a moment to pray together. God, you are so good. We thank you for this incredible gospel, for the good news of your love that went to all lengths to bring us back to you. And God, we acknowledge that so often our lives get cluttered with things that tear us away from you, that we chase after things that don't really satisfy us, we get distracted from you. And God, I pray that this morning you would help each one of us to just turn our hearts and our eyes towards you again, to receive your grace, and then to hear your voice leading us forward and to follow going to take, invite you to take a moment to center yourself in God's presence. Just take a couple minutes to reflect. Take a deep breath. Let yourself be reminded that God is here. That he's close. He's with you. And he knows your name. He knows what you're going through. He's 
as close as the air that you're breathing. And just take a moment to reflect on what it is that you need to repent of. Where in your life have you been distracted? What's been getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus? And just take a moment to name that before God, to confess that before God. And just open yourself up to receive God's grace. Maybe, as we did earlier this morning, maybe you want to just turn your hands up to receive God's grace. And now, how is God inviting you to move forward? What's the new direction that God's calling you into? Just take a moment to hold that before God in prayer. God, would you give us eyes, hearts, and ears that are open to your spirit. Let us us be people who um, hear your voice and follow you in your name.